Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Paul's writing, writing from prison in chapter 4, he speaks of being the prisoner of the Lord and and he salutes and greets the church in verse 1 and verse 2. And he begins his letter. He's going to teach some very fundamental truths in the letter. And he's going to teach them how to practically apply those truths, those doctrines. So correct doctrine leading to practice in our lives. And a foundation doctrine which he begins with is the doctrine of God's sovereign election. Verse 11 of chapter 3, he writes, According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. He begins with that. The eternal purposes of God in the election of his people. So this evening, I I want you to see the fact of election and the fullness of election and the function of election. God's sovereign work in calling a people to himself. Let's look at verse 4 first of all. See the fact of election. Verse 4, according as he hath chosen us, in him before the foundation of the word. It's firstly established that God has a chosen people. He has always had a chosen people. We call them his elect people. The new life that we have in Christ is not as a result of a decision I made at a meeting in the 1970s. It's a result of a decision that was made for me long before I was born. I want you to look carefully at the verbs in the passage, the the doing words. To whom are they referring? Am I doing something in this passage? Or is something being done for me? Is someone else doing something for me or to me? It's very important when you read the scriptures to read it forensically. To make sure that you understand what is actually being said. When I was at secondary school many years ago, we used to do a thing called comprehension. Do you remember that? And the school teacher would give you a passage from a book to read, maybe just a paragraph. And then you would have to write in your notebook what that meant. You would have to work out who was doing what, who it was being done to, apologize, to whom it was being done. And you would have to write out the subject and the object and you'd have to analyze the nouns and the verbs. And that's what we have to do when we're reading. And when we're reading the scriptures. Is someone doing something here for us? Or are we doing it for ourselves? Now the interesting thing is that in Ephesians chapter 1 through to Ephesians chapter 3, remember Ephesians falls broadly into two parts. Chapter 1 to 3 is 
the doctrine of salvation, the election and redemption of God's people, chapter 3 to chapter 6, chapter 4 rather to chapter 6, is how that works out practically in our lives. How you will see and know that a person is a Christian by the way that they live. But in chapter 1 to chapter 3, all of those verbs, every one of them bar one, are in the indicative tense, indicative sense. They are indicative verbs. In other words, they indicate something that has already been done rather than something which we are to do. In chapter 4 to chapter 6, that changes and it becomes verbs that we are to do. They then are telling us what our imperatives are for us. And the only one exception, as far as chapter 1 to chapter 3 is concerned, is found in chapter 2 and verse 11, which you read earlier on. And the verb there is the word remember. So in the whole plan of salvation, in the whole of our election and our redemption and our sanctification and our going home to glory, we are passive. And it is God who is doing the work for us. It is the Holy Spirit who is applying it. It is Christ who has redeemed us. It is the Father who has chosen us. Our task is to remember what the Lord has done. We are passive. So who's doing the work here? It is God who works for us. But we have to ask the question, why would he do that work? Why would he do it? God has chosen a people in him before the foundation of the world. Now let's ask what existed before the foundation of the world. The Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God created the world and the universe out of nothing. Nothing at all. But yet within the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, there was love. God is love. And so we read here, that in, in verse 4, that God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And I suggest to you that he did that before the foundation of the world, when there was nothing, when God chose a people for himself, and he did it purely out of love that pre-existent love that God chose me and you to be his. Great question is, why would he choose me? This doctrine is not something to make you feel good about yourself. The doctrine of election is not for you to feel superior, for you to feel better than anybody else or more worthy than anybody else. The doctrine of election is a very comforting doctrine. Let me explain why. Because there is nothing in me that would make me attractive to God. Nothing whatsoever. 
He loved me when I couldn't love him. He loved me when I was a sinner. He loved me and demonstrated that love for me in Christ by sending his only begotten son into the world to be my saviour. So he did this work. He did it before the foundation of the world. And he did it just out of love for sinners. Election is a fact. God's love for his people is rooted in eternity past. And it will last to eternity future. Do you know, there are some people who will say to you, well, you know, if God has chosen you to be his and God has chosen me to be his, why then do we need to have evangelism? Why do we have to have special meetings to tell sinners the gospel? Why do we have to send missionaries abroad to preach the word? Why do we have to stand on street corners and proclaim the good news? Why do Christians spend money printing gospel literature? Why would you bother doing that if God has already chosen those who are his and they will surely come to him? Why would you do that? I like the way Sinclair B. Ferguson in his commentary addresses this issue. He says the, the answer to that question lies in the fact that Paul here is teaching this fundamental doctrine of election to people he had evangelized. Cast your mind back a year or so to when we were looking at the book of Acts. You remember we looked at Ephesians and we saw that Paul spent three years in Ephesians, telling the people about Jesus, teaching them, evangelizing them. And many people were saved, and we, we saw some examples of that. And we saw that the gospel stirred up opposition, and that people were enraged because of the effect of the preaching of God's word. Paul, the missionary apostle, Carrying the good news to sinners, bringing Gentiles into God's kingdom. Now he's telling them, God chose you from before the foundation of the world to be his. So we preach the gospel to every creature. We boldly stand in the public square and we declare that Jesus is Lord. And that he died for sinners. And the Lord knows who are his and will draw to himself those whom he has ordained to be saved. The fact of election. Let's see the fullness of election. Verse 3. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. How blessed we are. I wonder do we ever sit back and consider just how blessed we are. How God has 
chosen us and how Christ has redeemed us. I suspect not often enough because if we did, we would be overwhelmed with praise and with wonder and with awe. A few weeks ago, I met a very fascinating and intriguing woman in the company of her son. She was fascinating because I can honestly say I have never ever met a woman or indeed anyone who could talk so much and so fast and never draw breath. I made the mistake of asking her a question. Her reply took, I would say probably about three minutes and it included a vast amount of information that was totally unrelated to the question it asked. She hardly drew breath, and I actually only got her stopped by physically holding up my hand as a signal and rudely interrupting her. And when I finally got her flow of words stemmed, her son explained, don't worry about her, she's easily excited. So for the rest of the conversation, I addressed my remarks to him. And when he gave me an answer, I jumped in straight away, just in case she started up again. And even then, she still managed to get started a couple of times. Well, Paul must be easily excited. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, right down to verse 14, he's excited. He must have been right throughout this passage. He never seems to take a breath. He's dictating this letter to a scribe, to a companion, and he starts talking. And he starts talking about the Lord Jesus. And he starts talking about what the Lord has done for us. And he begins this first section of this book with this doxology, this explosive poem of praise in which he catalogues the wonderful works of God in redeeming us from sin. And the excitement builds up and he states truth after amazing truth and in the Greek text there is no break This is just one long sentence from verse 3 down to verse 14. Never stops. Excitement of what the Lord has done. At the fullness of his sovereign grace for us. He talks about blessing the Lord in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we bless the Lord? We're used to asking the Lord to bless us. But Paul prays, Blessed be the God and Father. And to bless someone in this sense, to bless the Lord, is simply to speak highly of him. To lift up his name in our conversations. Plenty of people use the words Jesus Christ these days. Do you know it's offensive? You turn on your television to watch something light of an evening. Maybe just to get an hour or so's relaxation and to wind down. 
and immediately you're struck by the fact that the actors in these dramas continually blaspheme the name of Jesus. I've noticed they never blaspheme the name of Muhammad. But they blaspheme the name of Christ. They do it so crudely, so offhand. Christians are to bless the Lord, to speak highly of his name. Look at the sphere of these blessings, because these blessings are to be in heavenly places. Here's an interesting fact. These people in Ephesus, and we as well, we live in two places at one time, don't we? We live on this earth, we live in the world, but we also live in the kingdom of God. And we know that the things of this world are temporary, they're passing away. The material blessings that we have, we know that those blessings and those goods which the world craves in abundance will not last. They will perish. The gospel makes us no promise of earthly prosperity. But we are blessed with riches in God's kingdom. Treasures that are laid up in heaven that will endure forever. And look at the source of these blessings. For they're found in Christ. He has blessed us. Our Lord Jesus Christ hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. They're found in Christ. And we have such a long list of them. And Paul is going to list them for us here as he goes through chapter 1. But the greatest of these blessings, I think, is that we have the Lord Jesus himself. That we are to be found in him. And Paul dictates this great eulogy of praise. Speaking highly of God the Father who has chosen us in Christ. It's like he is overwhelmed with the superabundance of blessings. The good things that the Lord has done for us. It's as if he can't stem his own excitement, fullness of knowing that God in his grace and mercy has chosen you to be part of his redeemed people. And then lastly, we have the function of election. Here we have it in verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You see, God chose us for a reason, for a purpose. We're to be given new life in Christ. We're to be changed, to give a new status, a new destiny. We're to be made holy and blameless before the Lord. So we have, first of all, a change of destiny. We're to be holy and without blame. And to be holy and blameless in the common sense of the word cannot happen to us in this world. Sure it cannot. We are sinners. 
As long as we live in this earth, we will be sinners. We will be tempted by the devil. He will bring thoughts to our mind that are unworthy. He will lead us astray. He will try to, to, to trick us and to make us stumble. There will be temptation and there will be sin. And we'll continually have to examine our lives and live repentantly when we get to heaven there will be no more sin and we will be holy and we truly will be blameless before the Lord but until that day we live in this world and we live in these earthly tabernacles or bodies we're sinners but we do have a change of destiny a place that we're going to where there will be sin no more and we have a change of status. And that will affect us in two ways. Remember what I said earlier. These Ephesians lived in two worlds. Two kingdoms. They lived in God's kingdom and they lived in this world. Living in God's kingdom, we are already regarded as holy and blameless in Christ. Look what it says in verse 4 that we should be holy and without blame before him, before God. So we're living in God's kingdom and we are holy and blameless because we are in Christ. We're living before him. There's a Latin phrase that's used for that. We talk about corum Deo, before God. Living before God. According to R.C. Sproul, the essence of Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. Christians, then, can be said to have put on Christ. We are sinners, but we have put on the righteousness of Christ. We have been made right with God because Christ has paid our fine for the broken law at the cross. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And we do that in him. To be in Christ means that when God looks at us, he no longer sees our imperfections. He sees the righteousness of his own son. Can I quote a poem? When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We live holy and without blame before him because God looks at us 
and sees Jesus. But these people live in two worlds. They live in two kingdoms. And they're living in this world. And that change of status before God surely will affect our lives in a way that those who are around us will notice because we're not only living righteously quorum Deo before God, but we're living or ought to be living righteously quorum Mundo before man. I think the psalmist expresses this perfectly in the last psalm that we're due to sing this evening. Psalm 56 and verse 13, the last line of that psalm, the last two lines, says, For thou hast delivered me, my soul, from death. Wilt thou not deliver, wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living. To walk before God in the light of the living is Coromundo, walking blameless before man. Got to do some word study just for a moment, almost finished. Because we are made holy in Christ, and the word, of course, is simply hagios, the same word that we derive the word saint from. Holiness before the world is simply to be different. It's simply to stand out in the world. This whole world is steeped in sin. And as time goes on, it becomes more and more of a moral morass of filth and sin and degradation. And the more it drops into the depths of its awful depravity, the more Christians should stand out. And I think that's why the world will hate you. When I was a teenager, my old pastor used to say quite often that we are to be in the world, but not to be of it. We should stand out like a sore thumb. Our speech and our actions and our attitudes and our worldview will reflect the difference. Like in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, whenever the People in Jerusalem heard the preaching of the gospel and they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men in their eyes and they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. We can't have spent time with Christ and be in a relationship with God through him and look and act speak like the world we're made holy and blameless that's a little different the word there amumus draws the mind back to an Old Testament sacrifice to a sacrificial animal that had to be spotless and without a blemish so that it would be fit for God. The Christian life in this world is a life of taking up your cross, following Jesus, a sacrificial life because of what is Christ, because of what Christ has done for us. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. We have a change of destiny, 
and we have a change of status before God that will change our appearance in this world. And we have a change of family in verse 5. Because we're told distinctly here, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. I haven't got time to comment on that just now, because we're out of time. We have seen in this simple few verses this evening, the fact of our election. The fullness of praise and blessing that stems from that election. And the function of that election to give us a new destiny and a new status before God and man and a new family brought into a relationship with Christ given adoption as sons into God's kingdom and we might serve him again and in hearts in heaven. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.